Well, good morning, City Church. Let's try that again. Good morning, City Church. It's good to see everyone here. And um, I want to thank you so much last week as uh, many of you prayed for and then cheered for the Green Bay Packers. And at 6.40 this evening, they're going to be playing again, although I would rather you were at the vigil this evening at City Church Central. And, uh, but other than that, again, thanks for cheering for the Packers, because Jesus does. Um, so what we're doing as a City Church family is we are in a sermon series called Back to the Basics, Back to the Basics, which at the outset sounds boring, but most of us, myself including, uh, included, and I write these sermons, have found it extremely, extremely challenging, and this morning's sermon is no different. Now, the idea here this morning is that I'm going to go back to a text that we skipped last week. Last week, we took a look at part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. We read through three sections that are intrinsically linked, and I skipped over something Jesus had to say, and that's where our focus will be this morning. But before I go there, I did want to say that the Sermon on the Mount, if you've never read it, some of us are people who are looking over the wall at faith, you're checking out Jesus, someone here at City has told you about Jesus, kind of said, hey, come and see him, come and experience, and you're kind of checking out who Jesus is. I would really encourage you to read what's known as the Sermon on the Mount found in the book of Matthew. It's where Jesus gives his vision for a new kingdom that he is leading in the world. It's a new kingdom. It's very similar, exactly it's mapping over when Moses goes on Mount Sinai and receives the law of God and then brings the law to the people. He's, Moses was casting a vision for a new kingdom that God was bringing. Jesus does the same. He goes up on a mountain just like Moses, but now he brings his vision for the kingdom of God in the world. That sermon, that teaching called the Sermon on the Mount has transformed Western culture, literally transformed it. In thinking that through and in preparation for Martin Luther King Day, I often go back and listen to several of Dr. King's sermons. I was listening to one this week that he preached at Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery, Alabama on November 17th in 1957. And it was from the text from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 44, where Jesus for the first time ever in recorded history says something, and it's this, love your enemies. In that sermon, Dr. King admitted that that passage of scripture was the passage of scripture that he has preached on or did preach on the most because people need to hear it. In that sermon, taken from the Sermon on the Mount, but focusing on that phrase where Jesus says, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Here were some things that Dr. King said that gripped me. In explaining love thy enemies, he said this, this simply means this, in the best of us, there is some evil, and in the worst of us, 
there is some good. When we come to see this, we take a different attitude towards individuals. And then he went on to say, and when you come to this point, you look into the face of every man and woman, and you begin to see the image of God. Find the good in your enemy. In his sermon, he went through some practical ways in how to love your enemy. And I was gripped by what he said here. He preached another way to love your enemy is this. When you can defeat your enemy, you must not do it. There will come a time, there will come an opportunity when you can defeat that person. That is the time you must love your enemy. He did go on to say and to clarify, which was so brilliant. Here's what he said. Defeat the systems of evil, but love the people in the system. I would say this. It is impossible to live out the Sermon on the Mount without Jesus. It's utterly impossible. But in this sermon series entitled Back to Basics, last week I preached on the secret life. I told you very clearly that I'm praying for and I want every one of us to have a secret life. But you see, in the secret life that we looked at last week, Jesus talked about three things. There were three things that by how he described them by saying, do this in secret, do this in secret, do this in secret. It was clear that these three things came together. And in the Hebrew mind, you have to know this, three always means something, always. And if you're ever reading scripture and you see a pattern of three, you have to know there's something sovereign going on there. There are other numbers like seven and 10 and 12. But just know that three is a godly number. It's a way through which we read scriptures. And so Jesus, in these three things that were intrinsically linked by how he described them, he was talking about giving, praying, and fasting. That those three have to do with our secret life. We learned last week that giving has to do with money, and the Bible says money has to do with your heart, not your wallet. Then he went on to talk about prayer. Prayer involves how we think and deals with the mind. And last was about fasting. Fasting deals with food. Food deals with the body. So in these three things, Jesus captured the heart, the mind, and the body. He was talking about the entire person. When we look at those three things, though, we need to understand that prayer sits in the middle. He began by talking about giving, then he went to praying, and then he went to fasting. You see, the middle is important when you look at three things. The middle is prayer. You need to know that all Jewish people during the time of Jesus prayed three times a day, morning, noon, and night. And so when Jesus begins to talk about prayer, there's no doubt that the Jews in the crowd were going, we got this. We pray three times a day. But the prayer we're going to look at shows up twice in Scripture. Once in the Sermon on the Mount and once in the Gospel of Luke, where Luke tells us the disciples came to Jesus and said, teach us to pray. The prayer appears twice. You know, what's fascinating is, 
Here's what Martin Luther King said about prayer. To be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. Let's look at the Lord's Prayer. Remember, it's in the middle of the three. Three is important. And in the middle of the three, there lies prayer in Jesus' teaching. And in the midst of that, he actually gives an example. He didn't give an example for giving. He did not give an example for fasting. But in prayer, he does. We call it the Lord's Prayer. I'm going to ask that we would read it out loud together. Verse 9 is kind of introductory. Once I read the introduction, can we please read it out loud together? The Lord's Prayer, Matthew 6, 9 through 13. This then is how you should pray. Ready? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Some of you wanted to keep going. But what you need to know is that if you kept going, that, those phrases are only found in some of the most recent manuscripts of this prayer. This is most likely where the prayer actually stopped. Today's sermon is going to be somewhat devotional. All I'm going to do is walk us through the Lord's Prayer, and by the end, my prayer is you and I would fall in love with the Lord's Prayer, and that we, like the Jewish people during Jesus' day, we would pray it three times a day, morning, noon, and night. So as we look at the prayer, the first phrase is this in verse 9, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. I want you to notice something at the beginning, though. Notice the pronouns, our, us, we. There are no singulars at all in the Lord's Prayer. It's a prayer about ours, us, and we. You see, the Lord's Prayer is written and given to us by Jesus for an entire community, or a family, or a life group here at City. The idea here is, is that this is a prayer that is prayed with the vision of being part of a community of faith. Jesus declares, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Here's what's stunning, and I wouldn't have gotten this without Bible scholars either, so forgive yourself if you didn't. But when Jesus begins this prayer, he says, our Father. He does not say the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's how Jewish prayers begin. Not with Jesus. When Jesus brings us the prayer and the model of prayer through which we're to pray, he does not say the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He instead turns it and says, our Father. You see, the first two words announce anyone can pray this prayer anyone. You do not have to be Jewish. 
When Jesus models prayer, he is opening up a life of prayer that focuses on the God of the Jews, but you don't have to be Jewish to pray it. The idea here is any tribe, any tongue, any nation is welcome to pray. Now what's interesting though is the first phrase says, our Father in heaven, let your name be holy. That's really what the prayer is. Hallowed be your name. God, I'm praying that you would be holy. As one biblical scholar put it, that's like praying that fire would be hot. That's like praying that water would be wet. So obviously, there's something else going on here. You don't look at God who is holy and you don't pray, God, be holy. No, it's different. It's the idea that when we think of God as Father, we will also have to remind ourselves that he is holy. Because at times prayer, if we focus on Father only, can either actually be a massive deterrent because some of us sitting here, when you hear the word Father, it's not good. What you need to know is this Father is holy. He's right. He's everything that dad needs to be. But for others of us, it's a cautionary tone because when we think of father and we think of a relationship with God, he can kind of become our buddy instead of holy. Holy means separated for a purpose. You see, God truly is holy and Jesus is letting us know that. But I'll tell you in my own life, I live in the tension between God being my heavenly Father, Abba Father, and God being holy. And here's what I mean. Some days, I need to get up and remind myself that I am a child of God. I need to remind myself that I have a heavenly Father who has drawn me into relationship with Him, and I truly am His Son and a co-heir with Christ. Other days, I need to remember He's holy. I need to get up, Get about the business of living the way I know God wants me to live. He's Father, but He's holy as well. Jesus now in verse 10 goes on and He prays the following prayer Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is shocking. The Lord's prayer is asking God to bring heaven to earth, and God knows we need it. What would it look like for God's heaven to visit Charlottesville? What would that even look like? Some of us have prayed the Lord's Prayer. We really don't know what it means, but we prayed the Lord's Prayer our entire lives, and we never knew that we were literally asking for heaven and earth to come together. We never knew that. But you were, because Jesus wants us to pray that prayer. And when I pray a prayer like that, I remember what someone said to me once that really bothered me at first, but has challenged my prayer life. The guy's name was J. Robert Ashcroft. His son was John Ashcroft. Some of you would remember his name. But I remember J. Robert Ashcroft said something to me once I will never forget. He said, Pete, you are a part of the answer 
to every prayer you pray. And I thought, I don't like that. I just want God to do his thing. I want God to be God. And I get to sit here in the easy chair and say, guess what? These people over here are hurting. Please touch them. Jesus, that person over there is in pain. Please touch them. Jesus, my wife needs help getting the dishes out of the dishwasher. Please send someone by your grace to go and help her, right? Isn't that prayer life? And when J. Robert Ashcroft said that to me, it stunned me. It literally kind of grabbed me by the spiritual throat, and I realized that it's actually the kindness of God, that in my prayer life, he is calling me to participate in his kingdom, and that's awesome. So when I pray, your kingdom come, your will be done, in Charlottesville, as it is in heaven, it involves me. As a matter of fact, it needs to start with me. Because if I'm praying for the kingdom of heaven to come down, I should be praying that heaven touches me too. I believe the Lord's prayer means that city church is called to be a part of the kingdom of heaven coming down. That we as individuals are called to be a part of heaven coming down to Charlottesville. I believe we're called to pray for it and believe we are a part of it. Now, the idea, though, is, is if God does not step down, it doesn't happen. You can't reach up to heaven. You cannot. But what can happen is, when people pray the Lord's Prayer in faith, God can lean down from his throne, and heaven touches here. Listen, the reality of it is, it's all about trust. It's about trusting God. And the next phrase is the one that is the toughest. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth, but not in my life. You see, the clarion warning is, is Jesus wrestled with this with sweats of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. What did he pray? Not my will, but what? Your will be done. If we think that God's will is something that we always take on easily, we're crazy. As a matter of fact, I have found in my life that my flesh almost always pushes back against God's will because it means change in me. It means me being transformed. Again, I love to sit in the easy chair of prayer and point at everyone else. By the way, you all need change, lots of it. But here the prayer is, your kingdom come, your will be done in Pete Hartwig's life too. You see, the idea here is, is it is trust. We begin to trust and believe in Jesus that his will is better than mine. Then we go to verse 11. Verse 11 says this, give us today our daily bread. What kind of bread is it? What's it called? Daily bread. And when do we want it? Today. That ought to be a cheer. Today, daily bread. Today, daily bread. But the problem is, 
That bread in the Greek is called epiusan bread. And no one knows what epiusan means. It's true. In fact, the ancient church father says God alone knows what that word means. But the idea here is in the NIV and in most versions, it's translated daily bread. But what's more incredible and biblical scholars tell us is that the oldest interpretation of epiusan bread is found in the Syriac in a document from the second century AD. There, it's called the Lachmo Amino. The Lachmo Amino, which they translated to mean tomorrow's bread. Tomorrow's bread. In other words, the Lord's prayer is that God, would you give us today the bread that does not run out? Putting it practically, putting feet to our faith, here's what it means. God, as I pray today, please deliver me from the fear that there will not be enough tomorrow. Most of us live in the grip of fear that today is all I'm going to have and tomorrow I'm going to lack. You see, the Lord's Prayer, if this word lakmo amino is truly translated property, properly, Lord, give me my daily bread with the lack of fear that tomorrow the bread will run out. You see, the Lord's Prayer is a call again to trust God It's a prayer that says, I'm going to believe God for today, and I'm going to trust God for tomorrow. And Jesus literally said that. Don't worry about tomorrow, because today has enough worries of itself. And then the prayer goes on. And it says, verse 12, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. What is a debt? A debt in Greek is something that we should do, but we have not done. It's a debt. In the Gospel of Luke, Luke uses both words, debt and sin, but not Matthew. Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount only uses debts. These are the things we should do, but have not done. Sin, on the other hand, are the things that we did do, that we should not have done. So here we sit, the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus is teaching us that we are to ask God to forgive us for those debts, those things that we knew that we should have done, that we did not do. And now we're to forgive our debtors, those people who we should have done things for them, Or better yet, they should have done things for us, but they didn't. They didn't. And now we're bitter, or we're angry, we're disappointed. And I wanted to say this again, this is a quick aside, but I have yet to meet a college student who didn't wrestle with this with their parents. Where mom and dad were just not perfect. Think about that. I'm not the perfect parent. There isn't a perfect parent other than the God the Father that we're praying to in this prayer. 
learning how to process through life, knowing that God truly forgives me for the things I should have done but didn't, allows me to forgive other people too. Those people that should have for me but didn't. I want you to also notice something else. Verse 12 says, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. But what's amazing is, is that that word and begins verse 12. But in Greek, there's no punctuation. Greek is one long run-on sentence. I believe that just like give us today our daily bread, give us today, the and should join to that thought that every single day I need God's forgiveness and I need to give it to others. Inasmuch as I need daily bread for my physical nourishment, I need forgiveness every day flowing to me and through me to others for my spiritual survival. I have said this for 21 years as the pastor of City Church. Forgiveness is the currency of the kingdom of God, not love. Love is there, yes. But forgiveness is the bedrock from which love actually rises. The currency of the kingdom of God is forgiveness. And what's incredible in this scripture It's apparent that in order for me to have my debts forgiven, I have to forgive the debts of others. I'm the trigger mechanism. But what's amazing in other texts, God steps out first. We forgive because we're forgiven. And it appears in Scripture that there's some type of confusion, but there's not. The idea truly is God forgives me. And if I refuse to let forgiveness flow through me to others, the forgiveness stops, it stagnates, and it rots. I would say this very clearly. Revenge is the opposite of the Christian life. Revenge is like the flypaper of Christian life. It leaves us sticky, trapped, and limited. But if we believe that God's a God who forgives us the things that we didn't do but should have, and he truly forgives, then we have the power to be a group of people that does the same. Martin Luther King understood this. It's what drove his life. It's why he was able to say with confidence, love your enemies. This verse, I think, is even more powerful in Spanish. I don't speak Spanish, but happen to come across a text. And if you were to read it, even look at it with English eyes, you would quickly see that the word pardon is there. That pardon is there. It's perdon. I don't know how to say it, so I won't. But when you read it, it literally says pardon us so that we can pardon others. I love that vision, because somehow pardoning has more weight than the idea of forgiving for me. But in the end, I have to trust that God truly does forgive. Some of us are unsure. 
But if we pray this prayer three times a day, maybe, just maybe, we will become a church and a group of people that honestly believes that God forgives, that he truly forgives. The Lord's Prayer is there to remind us of that. And then the last phrase, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. What an odd phrase. Lead us not into temptation. Some theologians think that this might be a little bit off because God, if God loves us, would never lead us into temptation. He might lead us into trials, but not temptation. The best I can give to you is this. Do you know what the difference between a trial and a temptation is? It's whether you fail or not. If you don't succeed, ah, that was a temptation. If you made it, it was a trial. But here's what I think the prayer means. God will never, ever, ever lead you into temptation where Satan will eat your lunch. Never. Because notice the phrase, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from who? The evil one. A good way to put this is where there's a brilliant theologian who was dealing with this text said the following, that there was a time in his, in his life where he would travel the Sahara Desert many, many years ago. He was in his 80s when I was reading and hearing him concerning this text. And when he was in his 20s, he would go into the Sahara to visit tribes. And what he said was, is when you got on the back of your camel, there was no GPS, there was no way to move through the desert other than your guide. And he said, every time you got on the camel to head into the Sahara, you wanted to say to your guide, don't get us lost because if you do, we're dead. That's what this prayer is. It's, dear God, we are committing to follow you. And wherever you lead us, we're going to go. So if you lead us into temptation, we're not going to, we're just going to fall right in. Because this prayer calls me to trust you at levels I've never trusted you before. So I'm going to follow you. Be my desert guide. Lead me beside still water. Lead me to green pastures. Be the God that gets me through. And oh, by the way, God, if you don't deliver me from Satan, I'm toast. You're the only one that can defeat the devil. You're the only one. And so when we look at the Lord's Prayer, the Lord's Prayer, prayed three times a day, is a prayer that calls me to trust God at a level at which I've never trusted him before. We're now going to move towards communion. And as we move towards communion, I'm going to ask that if you did not pick up the communion elements when you came through the door, just raise your hand. We've got people prepared to serve you with communion. So again, if you didn't get it when you came through the door, raise your hand, keep it up high. The ushers are moving right now to give you communion. But as they're doing that, and they're serving those of us who need it, I want you 
along with me as you hold the emblems of communion. I want us to honestly ask ourselves this question. Honestly. Have you, because of the residue of life, actually stopped trusting God? You're a follower of Jesus. You believe in the death, burial, and resurrection. You've got your doctrine down. You know what you're supposed to believe. You've got some memory verses memorized. But the truth of it is, because of the residue of life, some of the stuff you faced, you look at the Lord's Prayer, and you say, honestly, God, I don't really trust you. I don't trust you for tomorrow's bread. I don't really trust you. God, in all honesty, I don't trust you that you will lead me into the good places, that you will lead me through the trials. God, I kind of have unhitched from that. I believe this morning's sermon is for you. It's a sermon that calls you again to trust in God, to trust in the story of God, that God is good, that God loves his creation and he loves his people. And that when we truly trust him, he guides us and he leads us and he directs our paths. For communion, we're going to step into a time of worship. We're going to sing this worship song that speaks about heaven coming down. Stephen's going to lead us through a little bit of that and then I'll step back and we'll take the bread. Then we'll worship some more and we'll take the cup. But if you would now please stand with me. But please again ask yourself the question, do I truly trust God? Do I truly trust him? The Apostle Paul writes to the church of Corinth, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. When given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me as we hold the bread up before the Lord. I'd like for us, as we do so, to recommit by faith to trusting in God. That the call and the challenge of the Lord's Prayer would be put not just in our salvation, but in a God who daily participates in our lives. Let's hold the bread up before the Lord and let's give him thanks. Jesus, thank you for your body. Thank you for coming incarnate, that you came in the flesh. And as we hold this bread up, we know that you went through trials, temptation, just like we have. And therefore, you're a high priest who has compassion and understanding. But Jesus, as we hold up this bread, 
We thank you that in the incarnation you committed to us. You committed to the human race. You became one of us. Therein we trust in you. We put our faith and our hope and our trust in who you are and what you've done for us. Let's partake of the bread together. In the same way, after supper, Jesus took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. As we hold the cup up before the Lord, the scriptures call us to examine our hearts. As you hold this cup up, this cup signifies and is the symbol of the forgiveness of sin. Have you truly trusted that when you've asked Jesus to forgive you for your sin that he actually has? Or do you find yourself reliving that over and over again? I want to challenge you, even encourage you, that as you hold this cup up before the Lord, you would do so in trust, maybe for the first time, that Jesus truly forgives. And what he has forgiven has been dealt with. And what's been dealt with has been removed eternally from your life. Jesus, thank you for your shed blood. Thank you for what it does in us and through us. Thank you that in it there is a new covenant based on faith and grace and love and forgiveness and not works. So Jesus, now as we hold up this cup, we say thy kingdom come, thy will be done in Charlottesville, in my life as it is in heaven. Let's drink together. We rarely, if ever, do this, but as we conclude our time this morning, I'm gonna ask that you would somehow link up with the people around you, whether it's elbow to elbow. If you wanna hold hands, that's fine. I know some of us are concerned about the flu. But if you want to put a hand on the shoulder, no one's standing alone. We're going to conclude our service by reciting the Lord's Prayer together and then the pastoral blessing. I do want to bring a quick reminder that we do have our growth track, week number two. If you didn't go to the first one, that's fine. They provide lunch and that immediately follows our service today. But the reason why we're linking up to recite the Lord's Prayer is because, again, it's about we and us and our. If you know the prayer by heart, close your eyes. And if not, it's up on the screen. But let's again recite it together. This then is how you should pray. Ready? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread 
and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And now may the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord turn his countenance towards you and give you his peace. In Jesus' name, amen, amen, and amen. God bless you. Give someone a high five, hug, fist bump, or handshake before you leave.